Hi, my name is M.K. McDaniel. My friends call me Kathy. And I am the author of a memoir, Misfit in Hell, to Have an Expat. It describes my life before, during, and after a distressing near-death experience. I was a cradle Catholic. My folks were Catholic. I always went to Catholic schools, taught by the nuns and the priests, went to church every Sunday. I believed everything that I was taught. Now I've come to believe that I was misinformed. When I was 53 years old, I was asked by my best friend to please accompany him to Seattle because he had leukemia. There was a certain research hospital. He had to have two caregivers and I was, I was going to be one of them. So I left California, went to Seattle, Washington, found us a place to live just a couple blocks from the hospital and settled in. We were told it would be two or three months we'd be there. Well, eight or nine months later, we were still there. He had become better. He would get worse. The other caregiver had broken her foot and now I was taking care of her too. This was around the clock duty. He would start bleeding from the nose in the middle of the night and we'd have to take him over to the emergency room. He'd be in the hospital for a week and then he'd, we'd bring him home. This really took a toll on all of us. And then in November, he died. I was mentally and physically, emotionally and spiritually spent. There was nothing left. I went to a program, a singing program with a friend, a guy I was dating while I was up in Seattle. And I caught a terrible flu that was going around, very similar to COVID. That flu turned into pneumonia, which turned into ARDS. That's acute respiratory distress syndrome. I was given a 38% chance of living. I went from being an independent person to being someone on a ventilator, put into a drug-induced coma for three weeks. My family all came out from California and Colorado and they were told I probably wasn't gonna make it, but they would try everything they could. This was 23 years ago and they didn't have the technology. They were experimenting on the likes of me. Just before I went out, doctor came in and said, I'm going to give you something called white amnesia. And that's gonna cause you to completely forget or not be able to remember anything that will happen to you in this coma while we're doing all these terrible experimental things to you. Uh, you'll thank me for it. So I had no choice. I said goodbye to my parents and my daughter and family. And I prepared to just go to sleep. Well, that's not what happened. I don't know when in this three-week period, it might have been when they told my family that I was not going to make it and they needed to say their goodbyes. I really don't know. But in a drug-induced coma, your spirit can wander. And all of a sudden I woke up, I became conscious and it was completely dark. There wasn't a sound. I had no reference as to whether I was sitting or standing. I thought somebody was playing a trick on me and stuck me in a closet. So I just waited. But all of a sudden there seemed to be a reddish glow in front of me and it was getting just a little bit lighter. And I thought, good, the sun's coming up. Okay, now I can see where I am and what's going on. But as it got lighter, it became very foggy and swirling around. I couldn't see through it. It became uncomfortably warm. I smelled something terrible. And then I started hearing shriekings and moaning coming out of this fog. I said to myself, this 
can't be good. Then all of a sudden, out of this fog came this booming voice that said, do you know where you are? And I said, I hope I'm wrong, but hell. And the voice boomed back with this maniacal laugh. I was freaked. I didn't care what happened to me. I had to get away from them, that thing. So I turned and I ran into the darkness. All of a sudden it became light. And as I looked around, terribly confused, you know, where had I been? Where was I now? I saw this huge city, but there had been an atomic bomb, aliens. I couldn't figure it out. The buildings were all falling over and on fire. The windows were blown out. There was big chunks of concrete everywhere with rebar sticking out of them. There was screaming and, and yelling and, and fires. I was terrified. I, I sought to find a place to kind of tuck myself in so I could get my wits about me. It became obvious that I was in serious danger. There were funny noises, a scuttling metallic noise, like a, a giant spider or, or, or a tank. And then there was a group of people that seemed to come out of the, the darkness and come toward me. They didn't talk. They were in rags. They didn't get too close. And one of them said, we are all alone here. I thought, oh, well, I better find another place to be. So I, I took a chance and I ran out into the rubble and I tried to climb this concrete wall. But as I got to the top, my fingers started slipping down and I fell backwards into the darkness. Boom, the lights came up. Now I was somewhere else. When I looked ahead, it looked to me like a, a movie set. There was a stage and on the stage, there was like beauty parlor chairs, all canted and crooked and, and mirrors that also were weird, like a, oh, a house where they have the haunted house and everything is spooky and weird. But then I saw somebody I knew it was a relative of mine and a person that you had to be careful around. She was very cautious about looking good all the time. And that could be okay, even if you were a little snarky on the inside, as long as you looked good. Well, I was glad to see a familiar face. So I thought I would go talk to her. So I went to this set and she says, oh my gosh, you look awful. Get up here and I'll fix your hair and your makeup. I climbed up into a chair and I said, no, you don't understand what's going on here. There's something very weird. She says, uh, no, if, if you look good, it'll be all right. She had two of her friends there who were also very good looking and always impeccably dressed. So when I said that, they all started laughing and then laughing really, really mean. And they wouldn't stop laughing and it made me mad. So I just got off of that stage and I walked into the darkness. The next thing that happened is the lights went out and up they came. This time I had to look up because there was a demon standing there. People say, how do you know that was a demon? Well, if you'd never been to Australia and you saw a kangaroo go by, you'd say that's a kangaroo. Well, this was a big, ugly looking kind of person, not even a person. It's like a, I don't know, Yeti, I guess, with a, a ratty outfit on with a big stick. And I looked up and I looked back and I thought, oh, golly, what's this? And he says, do you want to get out of here? And I said, in perfect English. And I says, yes. And he says, okay, I can see to it that you get out of here. And I says, great. And he says, one job. I got one job for you. And I said, all right, that's kind of weird, but sure. What is it? 
and he waved his hand. And when he did, the lights came up behind him. And as far as I could see was a field of blackberry bushes with the big canes that overlapped one another with the thorns an inch and a half long. And I looked at this huge field and I got a bad feeling. He says, all you gotta do is cut down all those brambly bushes and I'll see that you get out of here. Now I am from Washington and there's a lot of blackberries up here. And I know it, it would have taken me years with equipment and gloves and sharp scissors and all of that stuff to get that done. But I thought, well, I got no place else to go. Sure, give me a chance. So he handed me these paper cutting scissors that you give children when they go to kindergarten. And he laughed. I thought, oh, that's not a nice guy here. But I yanked the scissors from him and I tried to scoot down as far as I could get. And I was getting all scratched up. And I started gnawing on one of these canes until it finally came loose. And I turned to kind of put it behind me so I could get to the next cane. But when I turned around, it grew back right in front of me. The demon started laughing and I wasn't going to give him any pleasure in this. So I just went back to cutting and then it went dark and then the lights came back. I was walking on a road and I thought this was probably a good thing because it was flat. It was just gravel and dirt as far as you could see any direction. And way in the, in the distance, there was a horizon with that reddish glow, but no trees or bushes or signs or anything just a road. I thought, well, at least nobody's going to sneak up on me. I can, I can do a 360 here and I can walk. Well, I walked and walked and walked and walked and walked. Later, I learned that in eternity, there is no time. So this is why it seemed eternal that I was on that road at this time. I walked and walked. And then finally, I started smelling something, but it smelled good. And I thought, oh, I don't know how long I've been here, but I'm tired and I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and maybe somebody up there is cooking and, and I can get something. Again, I had no idea where I was. This was just my reality and I was making the best of it. I came to a bend in the road and on one side, there was a man sitting in a chair, which I thought was strange. And then the other side, oh my gosh, there was all these tables laden with food. Oh, and they smelled so good from desserts to to entrees, to salads and everything. And, and there was this woman furiously fixing things and setting out dishes and making sure everything was, was ready. And I noticed again, it was a relative of mine. See, when I was down there, I never believed I was dead. I never felt dead, just confused. So I kept going. There was nothing else I could do. I asked her, please, could I have just a small plate of anything you got too much of and a glass of water? I'd really appreciate it. She just looked at me like she didn't even know me. And she said, this is for the important people. Well, that hurt. So I just got back on the road. I kept going. I walked and walked. At one point, there is no sense of humor in hell, but I had a little bit left. I said to myself, I think I'm on a big treadmill. I don't really seem to be getting anywhere, but I like to walk. This is good. Well, not too long after that, I could see people milling about. And I thought, well, this could be good news. This could be bad news. But as I got closer, I could see that they were limping, dragging their feet and muttering, making growling noises. I thought, 
ah, geez, this is not going to be good. They had rags on and the women wore shawls that were ratty and dirty. And I had to go through this crowd of people. I don't know how many were there, maybe 20 to get to the other side of the road. There was no other place to go. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll just keep my eyes down and I'll shuffle and they'll think I'm one of them and I can get get through onto the other side and keep going. Well, that worked for a little bit. I got about to the middle when they all froze. So did I. Then the women with the hat shawl things on, they went to the outside of the group and the men started coming toward me. They were growling, muttering some language I didn't understand. And one reached up and punched me in the chest and sent me flying backwards onto my back. Another came by and kicked me. Then they jumped on me and did unspeakable things. When they were through, one of them leaned down and in my face and his breath stank and his face was, the skin was falling off. It was rotted. And he says, we all have AIDS and now you do too. You will not be able to die. You'll just get sicker and worse. That's your fate. Well, then they backed up and a lady came out, Lady Demon. She was kind of half person and half demon, not an attractive look. She leaned over me and she says, you're one of us now, get up. So I had nothing better to do. And I thought, well, at least she'll get me away from these guys. So I gathered what was left of my ripped clothing and I stood up and by then, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get out of here or not. Along the way, the demons had said, you know, just despair, just give up. You'll never get out. I followed this lady to another group. And this was women like myself, who had obviously been through what I had. They had tattered clothing on. Their eyes were down. They were weeping. I got in line and she took us to the edge of the forest. And before us was a tundra, ice and snow on the ground no trees, as far as you could see. She told us to get in line and follow her. And so we did one by one as it started to snow. I thought, wow, how can this get any worse, you know? But it did. And we walked and walked until that snow was chest high. And the expression, cold as hell, is real. We were freezing. And as we finally got to this cabin, she opened the door and shoveled us all in, in inside and made us sit down on the floor. And I said to her, I've been here a long time and it just seems to be a particularly depressing, bad energy time. Something I don't know about. And she says, well, it's Christmas on earth and that's always the worst day in hell. I thought, hell, I mean, I had been pushing that thought out of my mind, but to hear her say it, I was the last straw, but I wasn't giving up. I just started singing a Christmas carol, my favorite one, Away in a Manger. I thought, what else is going to can they do to me? I mean, I mean, really? So as I started singing away in a manger, a crib for his bed, she whirled around and she yelled, shut up, lifted a stick that she had been carrying. The other ladies kind of looked at me and I kept going. The little Lord, and as I got to that part, me and the ladies were singing together. She leapt at me like a spider and I closed my eyes and it went dark. And the light came up, but this time I was in with his tremendous love and joy and bliss. 
I couldn't believe it. I felt like every molecule of me was just swimming in this ocean of love, completely saturating me. I was so happy and joyful and everything that had happened, I couldn't remember. It was nothing but the love. And then as I kind of looked around, it was seemed like this white light was kind of turning into a cathedral or someplace with white granite walls. And as I looked over straight ahead, there was my friend, the one that had died only a month before. And he looked great. Last time I'd seen him, of course, with a leukemia, his face was all mottled. He'd lost all his hair. His eye was all swollen with infection, but he looked wonderful. And instead of 53, he looked about 35. He had on the sweater I gave him for Christmas. He was so happy to see me. He was just skipping from one foot to the next. And like, he really had a lot of things he wanted to tell me. And I was just shocked, but I was so happy. And I thought, oops, he doesn't know he's dead. And I just thought that. But by the way he was laughing, I thought, oh my goodness, he heard me. And if he's dead, then I'm dead. I was so excited. This must be heaven. And I said to him, you know, why are you standing in front of that doorway? And I saw a table over to one side with a great big book on it with it. It was open about halfway. And I thought he was showing me something in that book. What was it? But he started walking toward me and I was excited. And he said, now, Mary Kay, you've got too much left to do. What? I said, no, no, they were throwing me out. And I said, no. And he just smiled and boom, I was gone. But this time it was like in a meadow and, and there was a stream. And I figured later on when I'd had time to think about this whole thing, God was probably giving me a time out because I was angry and he wasn't going to send me back in that condition. So I walked along this stream, which was going downhill and it was lovely. And I met this lady there and she spoke a language. I didn't really understand. It sounded Scandinavian, but she gave me this beautiful handmade quilt, small one. And I said, uh, thanks, you know, and she, she motioned still talking in some language to go down further down the stream. So I put the quilt over my shoulder and walked down the stream. It really was lovely. Another lady was there. She was sitting in a rocking chair and she waved and I waved and she starts talking in this language and she hands me, these were like trousseau items, you know, uh, that you would get when you're going to become a bride. And, and she gave me a little nighty thing with lace on it. And I thought, oh, thanks. Threw it over my shoulder, kept walking. The final lady gave me another pretty lacy gift and then a piece of paper that she said in English, be sure and give this to my boyfriend's name and tell him you must live together. And I thought, can this get any weirder? Sure. So I took that piece of paper in my hand and then boom, it went dark. And oh yeah, the lights came up and they were way too bright. And there were all these people milling around and I thought, oh no, the zombie people are back. But then one of them said, oh, mom's awake. The other one says, oh my gosh, she's back. And I thought, who are these people and what's going on? Why can't I move? Why can't I talk? And they gathered all around me and said, now, mom, my daughter says, you've been really, really sick. We didn't think you were going to make it, but you're back. And we, we prayed, oh, we had a prayer chain going around the world. And I thought, Oh, you terrible people. Is this the reason I got thrown out of heaven? 
you know, but I couldn't talk. I had, of course, the trach was still inside me and I had dwindled down to 86 pounds because of just being fed in a nasal tube. So I had no muscle mass left. I couldn't move anything. The doctor came in a couple days later to examine me. The only thing I could move was one finger and I could blink. That was it. So here I am with this message reverberating. You've got too much left to do. And I thought, I can't even breathe by myself. How am I going to get all this stuff done so I can go back to heaven? Well, I had been in the coma for almost three weeks. I was there a month and I finally got to go home. I was very depressed. I was still haunted by the demons. I was unsure of what the hell that was all about. How did a good Catholic girl like me get thrown in hell? And nobody wanted to hear my story. They got too upset. That's depressing. That's that's weird. Why were you in hell anyway? What'd you do that we don't know about? So I started writing. I just would write it out as much as I could think of. And then I would put it into a drawer thinking if I could just get this out of my head, I'll be sane and I, I can start to have my life back. It took me 10 years to find a group called IONS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. So we each bring back just like a little puzzle piece when we come and then you get to share your puzzle piece and we get a better picture of what was going on there. What I understand now is that we are all part of God. I mean, our souls are part of God. And what I learned was that God is all loving, all forgiving, and would never condemn anybody. Anything that I was taught about God sending people to purgatory or to hell is not true. I believe that we choose to come down here and learn things. I've learned patience. I've learned all kinds of things that I wanted to learn. And so now I'm certain that I went to that place, for want of a better word. It was a manifestation that I had because I believed I would. So there's been a lot of changes in the way I, I think and feel and believe. And if a person is open to it. I'll be happy to tell them about it. I don't force my opinions on anybody. Everybody's chosen their own life and what happens to them. It's a wonderful thing to know you're not a victim anymore. When things happen to me, I now say, hmm, I planned that. What was I hoping to learn? It makes life a lot easier. I feel a lot freer. I know I'm going to go home. And uh, so I'm just here. To share my story and hope it helps you. Thank you.